On this episode of AV Week, we talk Dish's new voice remote, hacking Alexa, and we bid a fond farewell to the VCR. All this and more on AV Week. Ready. AV, AV Week. Performing scan. Week. Online. This is AV Week. The network for the AV industry. What are you listening to? This. This is AV. This. This. This is AV Nation. This is AV Nation. This is AV Week, episode 256, Torn on Tour, recorded July 22nd, 2016. And welcome to another edition of AV Week. I am your host today, George Tucker. Thank you for watching. Today, we've got some two special guests. Uh, first, let's say hello to Dawn Mead. How are you? Very good, thank you. All right. And of course... Mr. Brad Grimes from Infocom. How are you, sir? Good, George. Thanks for having me. All right. It's been only a few few short weeks since we've last seen you uh, down there in Las Vegas. Yeah, it feels like forever ago, right? It does, doesn't it? It's, it's, it's amazing how quickly it seems to have gone past. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get to the news first. It's not often that we get breaking news, as it were, but there's two that appeared in the last few days. First off, uh, you may have read In Commercial Integrator, that Verex was bought by a private equity firm. Uh, in addition to that, there was some news that Rain was sold to In Music as the founders retire. It's a very interesting turn of events. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I think there was uh, AVISPL was also bought by an investment firm of a similar nature. Actually, I don't know if they're the same company that bought both. I don't think they are. Uh, but Brad, let me start with you. There's a lot of buying going on, a lot of sort of consolidating. It is the summer months, and uh, you know, the buying's easy, I suppose, if I can paraphrase the song. <laughs> uh, but what do you think about this sort of idea that there's now investment firms reinvesting and repurchasing outright in a bigger integrators like ABISPL and like Verax? Well, I, I, I guess I... First off, I, I see it as a as a good sign that uh, you know these are you know smart investment firms. They don't uh, spend their money willy nilly. They looked at uh, the business model of some of these companies and they decided that there was growth here. They're not in it to lose money, so they uh, assume that by making these acquisitions, they're gonna they're gonna make money. And it's, I think, what we all see in the AV industry is that uh, that it is a great time to be in AV, that um, consumer and customer interest in, in what we deliver is, you know, almost at an all-time high. And so um, they're looking at these companies, these these really successful companies and, and the ones that do it well, and, and they're saying, you know, there's some growth here. I'm, I'm willing to invest in this company and, and see it to the next level. So it's, it's a great sign for the industry. Hmm. Don, do you think that there, do you think there's something particular that these investment firms are looking for? Is it just integration? Is it UC? What do you think they're really sort of chomping at the bit to have access to? Well, I actually, 
actually think it's sort of a validation for our industry. We're actually, we finally put on our big boy pants, so to speak. Um, you know, for years I've said we're the biggest industry in the world that nobody knows or understands or knows anything about because we've kind of flown under the radar for so long. And I think that finally investors and people out on the street are starting to realize with UC, with digital signage, with just the preponderance of AV in our lives now that, yes, this is a for real thing. This is a for real industry. Look, there are people that are doing it. There are people that have standards and certifications and experience in this and they're needed. And so that they're, they're seeing that we're for real thing and they're going to some of these bigger firms and, and smaller firms and buying them because they want to be part of that. Um, I have some friends here in the DC area that are kind of pessimistic and have said, you know, now that we're post convergence, um, we're getting folded into IT and more IT companies are doing what integrators do and we're going to be obsolete in a couple years so they don't recommend people go into AV. I, you know, call me Susie Sunshine, but I disagree entirely. And I think that news like the Varex purchase, the Rain purchase, some of the other purchases in the past few months validates that view that we aren't going away. We, we might be more and more part of AV world or IT world, but we're not being rolled in and becoming obsolete. We're a valid industry. And I'm glad to see that Wall Street and investors and, and, and the venture capitalists are realizing that. And, you know, Brett, yeah, go ahead. I was going to ask you, Brett, sorry. go ahead. I mean, one of, one of the other good things about this, I mean, an, an investment group, like I said, isn't, isn't buying uh, an AV firm or any other firm unless they think they can make money doing it. Um, you know, they're, they're interested in building it up and bringing their knowledge to bear on, uh, on that company and, uh, you know, make as much money with it as they can. So that's, that's all a good sign. But I, I don't know what's, what's in, what else is in the portfolio of this uh, company that picked up Barracks. Um, but the other thing, you know, a lot of what AV companies uh, struggle to do or, and one of the things that Infocom uh, is interested in helping AV companies do is get in front of enterprise decision makers. These are CIOs and this is the CIO suite. These are folks who, um, I would say bigger than IT. These are enterprise technology uh, strategists for, for large companies and for, uh, for other technology firms. Um, depending on what else is in a portfolio, you get this is a way of getting AV integration firms in front of enterprise decision makers. So, if I've got a portfolio of of companies and one of them is an AV company, one of them is an IT company, one of them is this, one is that, um, I'm introducing these folks. I'm 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 cross-pollinating the capabilities in my portfolio, and that's a great way for AV as a category to get in front of enterprise decision makers. Interesting. So a couple of years ago, um, maybe even 10 years ago, a lot of the manufacturers started to broach into each other's realm, right? It got to the point where being, just being partners wasn't enough to gain those profits and to gain market share. You needed to actually reproduce items that were similar to what your partners were making. Uh, it seems to me that almost seems to be what's happening in the integration side, except it's bigger firms buying smaller firms to make that happen. Do you think that's an apt uh, metaphor, I guess, for it, Brad? Um, uh, well, a lot of this is just what a mark was what market maturity is about. I mean, company manufacturers that. Uh, develop products that other manufacturers ma ma make or that aren't in their sweet spot necessarily are basically manufacturers who, are, who have been successful and continue to need to grow. 
I mean, if you're a manufacturer or an AV integrator, whatever you are, if you're not looking for ways of growing your business, then uh, you're you're sitting still, and you know that's you know that's not what anybody wants to do. That's just not what people who are in business want to do: is sit still. Um, so that's you know that's a reason for that. Um, whether they do it by acquisition or or other means, you know that's that's up to the the executive leadership of these companies to decide what the best way of doing it. Uh, is but really all this is a, a sign of a healthy industry that continues to grow and they grow in very in, in a bunch of different ways. You know, Don, I'm going to bring it back to you for a moment uh, because there's a question here. Brad says, you know, it grows the business. It um, it is you know puts them out in front of the decision makers. Uh, but do you think there's anything that might limit innovation in that? I mean, we've got a group that says this is the way to make a profit, build it like this, or am I just sort of being paranoid about it? I, th I don't think it will necessarily limit innovation. I think it might open doors to more innovation. Um, looking, you know, within our industry, we've had similar purchases and consolidations in the past few years, uh, no most notably when Harman purchased AMX and SVSI and a few other guys. And if you went to their booth at Infocom this year, the innovation and the way that they were tying these separate companies and separate entities together to make whole sol holistic solutions for end users, I think it's open the doors to more innovation rather than limiting it. And I think that can only grow by expanding into, you know, the venture capitalists who may be working with structured cabling, who may be working with IT, who may be working with who knows what industries. Um, and, and if I could jump back to your last point, George, I have to say, um, you know, not to disagree with Brad or anything, but as you guys know, um, Harry's currently looking for a new position. The last time several years ago, he looked for a new job. It was all AV companies, only AV companies that wanted to talk to him about working for them. This time, his biggest leads and the ones that are making offers are structured cable companies, are IT companies, are companies that normally weren't in our domain, but through acquisition and growth into our industry are now competing against traditional integrators. So I think that this whole kind of merging and consolidating, um, it's, it's opening a lot of doors work-wise, it's opening a lot of doors innovation-wise, and I think it's a really cool area to keep an eye on. And it goes back to something we've said on our own uh, several shows ago and in person at Infocom. You know, if you're going to be like a shark, if you're an integrator right now and you're doing what you did 10 years ago, 15 years ago, you're going to die. You need to keep moving forward. You need to keep advancing both your skills and your team's skills, or you're not going to be able to compete against a company that has everything and all of these different skill sets. So, you know, AV isn't dead. We're just evolving, and you need to be in on the evolution, or you're going to be like Cro-Magnon back there in the dust. Very nice, very nice. I'm almost at the point where we're just learning to walk on dry land. I think is what's happening there. <laughs> uh, all right. So let's. Uh, you mentioned innovation and opening doors for new technologies. Well, one of the things that we saw come along this week is Dish announces. I'm going to share it with everybody. Uh, Dish announces that they have a voice-controlled remote. Uh, they're calling it smaller than most remotes, although I think they mean that lengthwise. It looks pretty big widthwise. But it comes with a whole host of features, being able to control multiple uh, devices at once, give some feedback. Uh, this is a whole new genre, isn't it? We have Alexa, we have Siri, we have some other voice-to-text command systems. Uh, I've always been one to say that I'm not a gesture, and I've always wondered if the voice units could handle even in America, the different distinct accents that there are, and this one seems to have it happen. 
Don, I'm going to start with you because you've always loved these kind of technologies. Do you think that this is a boon for Dish, or do you think that they're just sort of trying to give something to get attention with? Both. And here's why. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're, they're definitely bringing it out just to get attention, and it's a cool new whiz-bang thing, and there are going to be early adopters jumping on it and so forth. But, I, I mean, I love giz gizmos and gadgets like this, but I'm also a skeptic. You have to prove something works to me. And when I try to use the the you know uh, phone di voice dialing on my car or with my phone, even then I, I don't think I have a particularly strong accent, and I get the correct number I'm dialing you know 50% of the time or so. So you know if and, and until I can test this thing and tell you that it actually legitimately works, I would say healthy skepticism, but cool idea and let's you know see how it develops. You know, Brad. This whole concept of whole house, whole building control has always depended upon physical interfaces, touch screens, uh, switch panels, button panels, that kind of thing. The promise has always been that if you had something that could just listen to you, sort of all of Star Trek's computer or PAL or any of those kind of things, uh, that it would be much easier to implement, maybe tougher on the back end, but for the end user. Uh, do you see this as the start, along with, say, the echoes and things like that? to being something that could make that mass market, both commercial and residential, acceptable? Yeah, I've always said, or I've said for a long time, um, that I think voice is the ultimate user interface. I mean, it's if you can get it to uh, to to work well. Oh, is that me? No, go ahead. Uh, yeah, if, if, if you can get it to work well, I think voice is the ultimate interface. And that's, and like Don alluded to, getting it to work well is the, the key. Um, so dish, yes, you know, putting a, a voice control is great and, and it'll be, it'll be instructive to consumers, whether they do it at home or they eventually do it in their offices to learn how to control things with their voice. So that's going to be an evolutionary thing. Just like, um, just like Apple taught us how to control things with a, with a touch screen. Um, so that's a process at the end of the day though, it has to work. And in my experience, the best voice control is a cloud application. This is just in my world of using uh, uh, voice control. Yeah, the voice control in my car, which is not a cloud application, it's, it's as good as the technology that they put in my car, is not very good. It doesn't always understand me. I do have an Echo, um, which does reach back into Amazon's massive cloud, and over time, it has learned how I speak in a lot of ways. I mean, it has gotten things right that it didn't get right in the beginning. It's it's a, it's been a learning application. Um, so it's a it's a very sort of hybrid technology type thing. I do think voice is a great interface, and it's the ultimate interface. Um, but we all have different voices. We all speak differently. So these interfaces, if you will, these devices are going to have to constantly learn. And constantly learning requires really big processing. Really big processing uh, requires a cloud somewhere. Hmm. Do you want Skynet? Because that's how you get Skynet. Do I have Skynet? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? Actually, you speak about Skynet. Uh, our friend Fred Wilson, he's from a, a venture capitalist firm, and he put out a wonderful blog called AVC in New York. Uh, he's behind such things as Twitter and Facebook and a number of other uh, streaming media and uh, internet-based devices. He has an article here with a friend of his called Hacking Amazon Echo. Now we're all familiar with Echo and its ability to take voice commands and do searches for you and turn on the TV and things like that. 
Uh, just like the Dish Remote, this one then, though, was taken so that they could hack it and run a code, as Brad said, on a cloud that basically, if you want to talk code here, it took the string of speech or things that it was sending out and parsed it and then asked it to do something else with it based on that command. So, um, Alexa, please turn off my lights. It would go out there, know that it had to parse it. It knows that I said it. It turns off the office lights, not my kids' room's lights, that kind of stuff. So we're seeing an application here where a device made for a specific way with its own cloud system actually can be, well, we're going to call it a hack, but we'll call it a life hack, to made to do other things. Sort of maybe unintended consequences here. But, Don, I'm going to start with you. This brings up a whole host of neat things you can do. Now the idea of off-the-shelf device being limited and only the pros can do it with these kind of boxes, while this is difficult, it's, you can do it now. This is a proof of concept, no? Yeah, I think so. Um, I, this is where I get into a kind of a, a, an internal conflict because the, the geek in me is like, this is the coolest thing ever, and I can't wait to do this, and I can't wait to play with this and try this. And there's another part of me going, oh, this can only end in tears. Yeah. <laughs> I, because, like you said, there's laws of unintended consequences. And, I mean, w once we start playing with these things, who knows what all people can hack and, and be malicious with. But at the same time, there's so much opportunity. And, you know, as much, as much opportunity as there is for dystopia, there is for utopia. And so I think it'll be fun to watch and hopefully steer, you know, our industry and some related industries to get us towards the utopia as opposed to the dystopia with smart devices and things running our lives and being able to think independently and, you know. <laughs> well, we well, too many sci-fi films from the 60s. I don't know. <laughs> well, Brett, <laughs> we'll get to the, the, the dystopian part of it in just a moment. But let's chat about the idea that this could be actually inclusive and increase who we have as participants in our AV integration marketplace? Could you see this being something that's also part of every install house, but also maybe a tertiary development house that could do things like this for you? Well, I've got, I've, I've got lots of thoughts on this. So, so basically these guys hacked uh, an Echo so that they could use it as a front end for their Sonos system. And, you know, we know that uh, Sonos is a nice a nice whole home wireless audio system. Um, so I got a bunch of things. First of all, it's great that it can be done. It doesn't surprise me that it could be done. Um, and smart people like these guys um, are, are the types of people you want in your AV company so that, you know, something like this, you know, you can come up with a solution like this. The second thing is um, there has to be, a, uh, you know, there's, I don't want to, I, I don't want to, get alarmist about the word hack. I mean, we'll talk about hacking and hacking is a security thing at, at some point here. Um, but, you know, there are, so, so I can use Alexa to, to, to control my Sonos, Sonos system. That sounds like an application that, you know, there needs to be a, a need for it. Um, you know, you can, you can go and you can interface a lot of things and you can use uh, uh, IT technologies to create new controls and things like that. At the end of the day, first of all, you, you need to have the people on, on staff who can do that and are creative and really, really good with this stuff. Uh, second, you need people need to want to do it. I mean, this will just peter out and fall by the wayside if nobody wants to use their Alexa devices or other devices to interface with certain systems. 
And if they really do, you know what's going to happen is that Amazon's going to build a Sonos interface into Alexa eventually anyway, and uh, and you're going to be able to control more things. There are a lot of things that Alexa can control. I have her in the house, and I don't control you know, a, a sliver of the things that she, she could control. Um, but the fact that this can happen is uh, a nod to the technology itself and the kind of uh, networking expertise that people have. And, uh, you know, you want to bring those folks into your company so that you can come up with solutions like this if there's a market for them. You know, Don, uh, Brad mentions that, you know, the, that they can do it, but they might try to build it into their own systems or even try to prevent you from executing that code externally somehow. This is something that's similar to when Xbox first came out with the the little interactive uh, sensor module that they had, right? And people hacked that thing to make 3D spatial camera systems and recognition systems. And at first they blocked it, and then they realized, oh, there's a lot going on here that they could really increase the usage of, maybe not Xbox, but that device itself as well. Uh, do you see that the be would be a real sort of... Do you think that Amazon's going to go, nope, you can't do that, don't be third party, and ignore the sort of rush of development that they could gain from that? Or do you think they're going to be more open-minded based on the, uh, the examples they've seen with Xbox? Oh, gosh. I, I mean, I can't know the minds of Amazon and their staff. <laughs> I would think if they were smart, they would embrace it and open the doors to that innovation and to that excitement because, you know, at the end of the day, you're going to sell more of your Alexas, you're going to sell more of your devices if you give people the opportunity to use them for more than one purpose. Um, you know, and there's a lot, a lot of cool things that have come out of not just hacking Xbox, but you know, there's all kinds of little devices. I have, I don't know if, I don't even know if you guys remember those QCATs that, that Radio Shack gave away like 15 years ago, the little barcode readers. They could only be used to scan their catalogs or it was some ridiculous promo. And those things got hacked. And I mean, the promo didn't last long, but they all these devices laying around they're cracked, and I mean, people use them. I have one that we use for like managing our library of videos and books and things. You just scan the barcode; it matches it up with uh, with the Amazon bookstore and, and enters all the information into your database and keeps track of what you have and what you don't have and what editions and stuff. I mean, so by allowing your devices to be hacked and used in other ways, you extend the life of your devices that that may go obsolete, but you also, again, you you can sell more of them. You know, so somewhere Radio Shack or QCAT or whoever the heck made the thing had a warehouse of these dumb things sitting around when the promo died and, and, and it wasn't cool anymore. But because they didn't necessarily disallow the hack or the, or the opening of them, now they can get rid of the things, even if it's just on eBay, you know. So I think if, if Amazon's smart, they'll allow innovation like this to take place and embrace it and see what else it can develop into. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, the... the, the the book of history on devices that were supposed to be specific and filling up our landfills is way too long and the ones that can be hacked I guess are great. Although most a lot of businesses also have also staunchly refused to let that happen because they're I guess concerned about having their copyright and or trademarks taken away from them, their, uh, their creative and intellectual property. But yeah, I think it's a stymie. But you know, Brad talked about something and you talked about the dystopian, on the dystopian idea of this. Um, but there is actually a solution. I know Brad, uh, Brad sorry, uh, Mr. Bradford Ben <laughs> talks about that all the time, the security. But what he has in concern, the people at Tor, if you know those people, they're the ones who have provided a dark net for many, many people, both good and ill. Uh, they now have a product out that says you can hide your smart home on the dark net. 
the dark net is no longer a problem. They have a little device that basically anonymizes your home. Uh, it's built by people who have basically said, we don't know what people use it for, so we can't be concerned if it's for really evil, nefarious things, but we also do it for good. Uh, Brad, let's start with you. Do you think that this actual product is worth looking at, or would you be suspicious of the people actually presenting the idea? Well, to be clear, I mean, it's it's not a product. These guys uh, at, at Tor, and it's actually from a group that's affiliated with the Tor Foundation, as I understand sure. it. Um, it's it's a proof of concept, and uh, I love this because it's a proof of an important concept. Basically, what they did was they created a device that could basic that could hide hide your you know Internet of Things devices. In this case, a smart home. That's what they're talking about because that's uh, the thing that a lot of people will uh, will identify with. But you know, we all know that the Internet of Things has blown up with absolutely. I don't want to say absolutely no because that's hyperbole, but with little regard for security. And what they've done is they've created a way of hiding Internet of Things things on the network so people can't find it and people can't hack them and people can't look at your kid on your baby camera and things like that. Um, now, it's, you know, as you know, the Tor network is, um, yeah, it's this dark internet that exists among, you know, a bunch of, you know, volunteer operated relays and uh, it, it anonymizes things on the internet, um, which is great and I'm, and I'm glad that exists as well. But, um, you know, this is, uh, again, a proof of concept and it's, it's not, it's an important development, it's an important proof of concept, but it needs a next step. And what I hope it demonstrates, and I think what they hope it demonstrates, is that this kind of stuff needs to go into your Internet of Things devices. I mean, if you're going to sell, you know, 100 devices to me in my home that are connected to the Internet, I need a way for them to be invisible to everybody else on the Internet. Um, I need them to, to do what they need to do. I need them to talk where they need to talk and when to, I don't need to oh, I don't want to open ports on my you know Wi-Fi router and things like that. I don't want everything visible. Um, so what I hope it teaches is Internet of Things device makers to create this kind of functionality into their products. And I think that's sort of what the Tor Foundation and this other group um, would like to demonstrate as well. Sure, they may develop a product that you can buy and then you can sit it on your network and it starts to hide everything behind it. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, someone's going to have to develop a nicely integrated solution that's not cumbersome that's you know my lights need to operate like that even if they're on the network they need to go you know like I can't have them thinking a lot when I, when I come in they need to work um, and so this needs to work really well too and, and be effectively integrated and what I hope is people take this concept and do this for Internet of Things devices in the home and uh, in the enterprise yeah let me ask you that you, you say that you would hope that the integrator or the manufacturers would put something like this in is this not you that it differs from say doing IP mapping or doing a network address translated system, right? Which is basically referring it from one class of IP to another. Mm -hmm. If we standardize on something like that, isn't it more hackable that they will eventually get there? I mean, we've sort of got an arms race going on here, and eventually it becomes moot anyway. No. Um. Well, I you know I don't understand it well enough to to understand. I mean, people th have been talking about being able to hack Tor for forever too, and so far it's it's questionable whether they've been able to. 
Um, if it's not, uh, you know, maybe there will be a product that sits on my shelf somewhere and becomes the thing that hides my Internet of Things network, or maybe it becomes built into the Internet of Things uh, devices. I don't know the best way to do it. Um, I do know, however, that the Internet of Things and the devices that are being put out there are insecure uh, and creating attack vectors all over the world, and, um, you know, that's an issue, you know, and... You know, the AV industry, I like to say, practically invented the Internet of Things by putting devices on the network before anybody you know, else thought to put their baby camera on the network. Um, and, but we need to ensure, we need to take security more seriously in the Internet of Things. And uh, if this is a way to do it, if there's other ways of doing it, I don't really care how it happens. Um, but if it doesn't, uh, we're not going to realize the potential that's there. John, would this sell you on putting more IoT type stuff in in your home and in your businesses? I know you do, but with government, that's probably not going to happen at all. But <laughs> well, I mean, you know, it it is still kind of a conundrum. I, on the one hand, as an industry and as a world, nobody takes security hard, uh, you know, into consideration enough. Uh, again, being in the DC area, like you said. Got a lot of friends working in cybersecurity, and you know, sit with Joel Bilheimer, sit with uh, Carl Maurer, sit with, uh, gosh, Brad from from IMS. You know, some of these guys, they will tell you horror stories about things that shouldn't be insecure, that are insecure and got hacked, and it's like, you don't even think about that stuff in these environments. What are you gonna do when your fridge is on the on the internet? You know. And people laugh. I mean, the article that you sent us about this is like, you know, keep your toaster safe from the Internet. <laughs> That's all fine and good to make light of it. But what they don't tell you or what they don't think about when they make light of it is the fact that by hacking a toaster or whatever that's on the Internet you now, or that's on a network, you now have access to everything else on that network. And if you're a smart enough and evil enough, you know, computer guy, you can go from that toaster to something else. I, I think I've used this example a couple times. I picked it up from probably Joel at one of the cybersecurity talks in the area, but Target's giant hack with all those millions of credit cards, the hackers came in from an unsecured 232 port on the HVAC system. They're hacking your, your, your AC system and stealing millions in credit card numbers. What, what can they do with a toaster, you know? <laughs> I mean, like, it, it sounds stupid, but it's happening, and so... Part of me hesitates to put anything on the internet, you know, with the IoT, but the convenience of it and the fact that that's what so many, the way so many companies and devices are going, you have to look at, at finding ways for security, whether it's Tor, whether it's something yet to be developed. I kind of hope something new can be developed because while Tor is great, there's also a lot of black hats on it and it's got a bad reputation. And I know legitimate cybersecurity people that work on Tor because it's secure that are on government watch lists because also all the pedophiles and drug dealers and everybody else is on tour. You know, it's like they, there's this perception that, well, if you're on tour, you have something to hide. Therefore, we're putting you on this watch list, which isn't always the yeah. case. It could, you know, it's a legitimate security concern. So, as I said, I'm torn on it. I, you know, you want to embrace the Internet of Things. You want to embrace the new devices and the new way of doing things that makes life so much easier but you don't want to be robbed blind or sent to prison for who knows what. It, it, it's really a mixed bag, and I think there's going to be a little more development and maturity in that realm before I can embrace it 
Yeah, I hear that. It's the yeah, torn, torn about tour. Uh, I like that. I think maybe just have the show title right there. Um, well, I mean, now we've been talking about well, brand new technology, technology that's on the bleeding edge of what's coming. Uh, something that's been around a long time and may have actually helped jumpstart a lot of this is the VCR. Uh, this is from all tech considered at NPR. So long, VCR. We hardly knew you. We're still around. Uh, basically stating that very soon, I think at the end of this year, the Japanese company that is the last one making VCRs will stop making them. And most of us would have thought, if you're not in the education world at least, uh, that that wasn't true, that they were gone for good. It's the disadvantage of doing this from home. Um, uh, so, so if you're not in the education world, you would have thought they're all gone. In fact, they sold 70,000 of them last year, they said. Good Lord is all I have to say. Uh, Don, let's start with you. You deal with some government work and some education stuff. They're still there. Uh, what do you think? Will there be lamenting cries and gnashing of teeth when this finally stops? Yeah, I think there will. I, I honestly think there will. I, I mean... You know, we're, we're in a culture now that, that all information is transient. You know, if you go back a few thousand years, you can go to the pyramids in Egypt, you can read the writing if you know hieroglyphics or have a translator. You, you can see what they were talking about thousands of years later. I can't open a floppy disk I used in college or a few years back to read a paper or to find information. So I, I think it's another symptom of that if people aren't being proactive about transferring their their videos, their their um, educational materials, their their training materials to newer technologies regularly, they're going to have a problem with this. And it's not necessarily just education. I mean, I would hope the folks at the archives and um, you know some of our, our the Library of Congress, for instance, I hope that they've all been translating and backing up and and re re securing the information as as we go, but. Who knows what we may lose? Um, you know, and, and, and again, I mean, VHS, it was never a great medium to begin with. It was the lesser of the videotape technologies, you know, in the Betamax debate. But it also, it was magnetic tape. You know, you leave it out in the sun, you, you put it by some magnets or something. There were all, any, you get it tangled. There are any number of ways to completely destroy and lose that information using VHS or even cassette, audio cassette tapes. Um, so, you know, it was not perfect. I'm not crying that it's going away, but I would hope that the folks, folks, if you're out there listening, technology end users at a university, school, government, if you still have VHS tapes, last year was the time, but now definitely grab one of these last units, transfer it all, save it somehow because it's going to be gone. Deal with it. Your professor will have to learn to use a different device, but it, it's just, you know, I'm not crying over it. Well, I, before I go to you, Brett, there's something that I, I was just sort of perusing the article again to make sure of something, but it's not 70,000, so it was 750,000 last year, which compared to, say, 15 million a year they used to sell, is still a lot. Yeah. <laughs> uh, are, are you seeing, Brett, uh, that people will have the sort of tears of watching this format finally go away, or uh, do you think that we really need to do better about preparing our clients for the transition to new media? Even if it is coming at a very rapid pace. No, I don't. I don't think anybody's going to cry about this. Uh, 
if the company who was who made 750,000 last year isn't crying, then I don't think anybody else should be crying about it. Um, I've heard all the stories, uh, especially in education, of of end users, if you will, teachers, media arts uh, people who still have stuff on on VHS, and I understand that. And as long as those things exist, that's great. I think as technologists, we all know that. Um, you know, transitioning our customers to other media and to digital and to all this other thing is good for us because, you know, we sell them systems and we get in a consultative role with them. And ultimately, it's good for them, and we just have to do a really good job of explaining that it's good for them. If anything, if you can hold up a newspaper article that says the last one is coming off the line, it's now officially dead, and it's not me, it's the company that used to make them that's killing it off. Um, then maybe that's you know the the wake up call for the rest of the folks who still have them. Um, I think we all know that everyone should be off of this right now, and they should be on other platforms, and we should be building these platforms for them. Um, you know, we transitioned in my house from VHS a long time ago. Uh, we don't miss them. I don't know who the 750,000 VHS buyers were. Um, my Suspicion is they had some really interesting VHS content that they had to be able to watch, um, but um, it, it, it's over. And uh, I think it's a nice story that VHS had. But uh, you know, we're all about the future, and let's let's start building the the next generation systems. <laughs> well, I have to say that I don't know how much experience you've had with sort of college educators, but they seem they seem to um, grip onto those things until their bony fingers are dead, and you can't pry them off anymore. <laughs> yeah. I and, can't and, and convert honestly, the VHS data to DVD. I just can't do it, you know. Yes, well, and it, it's not always just educators either. Um, the first company I worked for in the AV industry 15 years ago, whenever it was, they also did 8 millimeter film to VHS or to DVD transfers. And, I mean, you would think 8 millimeter film, that's really gone, unless you happen to be like a niche filmmaker that's like ancient history. I think as of a year ago, possibly even to this day, they're still doing it. They quit making the projectors. They have to, you know, scramble for parts and find wizards to, you know, fix the things when they break. But, you know, that technology is 40, 50 years. How old is 8-millimeter film? <laughs> you know, that was home movies back in the day. So if that can hang on that long... You know there are a few companies or a few universities out there squirreling away these VHS machines that they will either cannibalize by par for parts or dig out a new one until they run out when one of them breaks. And I, I would not be surprised if in 10 or 15 years we're having a conversation, really, they're still using VHS in such and such agency or such and such school? I, I would not be surprised, honestly. All right, guys, we've gone over our time. I want to thank you for joining us. Uh, Dawn, thank you so much for, uh, for coming on today. Great to see you, as always. Thank you. And we have exactly. a new AV stuff coming up, right? Uh, yes. On Monday, we're going to be finally recording our Infocom post recap of, uh, you know, who won, lost, and, and otherwise had a good time on social media out in Vegas. And uh, as well as looking for forward towards uh, things to come on social. So, and we do have a guest, and uh, we, you know, keep stay tuned for that. That'll be recording Monday and posting next week. So. And where else can folks find out more about you, your writings, and 
Folks can find me, of course, here on avnation.tv. You can find me on Twitter and elsewhere in the social realm at avdawn. And if you had talked to me yesterday, you could have found me at the bowling alley in D.C. with Infocom. <laughs> so what was your score? Uh, not good at all. Let's just put that. <laughs> Uh, I used I to bowl in high school, and I was just not good, so we won't. Oh, okay, it. an old bowling injury, right? Yeah, okay, I see what it is, of course. And of course, I also want to thank Mr. Brad Grimes, sir. Thank you so much for being on today. Thanks, George. Thanks, Don. It was great being here. And where can they find out more about Infocom and uh, the news and views from there? Oh my goodness, everywhere. I obviously follow Infocom at, 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 on Twitter at Infocom. Go by Infocom.org to figure out. Uh, where we're going to be next, as Dawn alluded to, we were at uh, at Lucky Strike in uh, D.C. Uh, last night. Um, we're at Infocom campus on campus in Boston on August 2nd. Um, what else we got? We have IoT Insights in New York City on September 8th. So we're really we're really busting into our East Coast swing here in the late summer, early fall. So uh, we look forward to seeing everybody. All right. All right, folks, thank you for watching. This has been a production of 8V Nation TV. This is a network made for and by working audiovisual and integration uh, uh, people. For you, uh, we have shows like this. There is Resi Week, which uh, posts every Wednesday. We have Dento, David Dento's Connected about IoT, which we just spoke about. We have EdTech, Education Technology, we also touched on here, and a host of other shows. You can find them at avnation.tv, and while you're there, Take a look at our underwriter section, the companies and folks who help make this network possible and we can keep the lights on. That's avnation.tv slash underwriters. Give them a shout and tell them thanks for doing it. Again, for everyone at Aviation TV, I want to thank you and we will speak to you again very soon.